Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Honestly, grace, if repentance and that call to repentance is done in love. And, and I do know that there are people who, who call people out of sin and, and they're more focused on that sin than they are the person and their love for that person. And that message gets, gets distorted and it's hateful and it's, it's nasty and it's just wrong spirited. But, but if done with the right spirit, with the spirit of Christ, and you're calling a man or a woman to repentance and away from a lifestyle that they're in and the life that they're living to a better life that they have in Christ and truly the, the only place that salvation can be found in him, then it really is an act of grace. In the same way that warning somebody inside a burning building that's burning down, your house is burning down. You need to leave now. Get out. Come away. Come a different direction. Go away from it. If you failed to do that, where would grace be, you see? There's a balance between these two things, but it's not this that John represented the old and Jesus represented the new. There's an overlap here between the two that's taking place. But the angel goes on to prescribe some important things about this child. Look at the next verse in verse 14 through verse 17. It says, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he'll be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, several things we'll note here that the angel tells Zacharias about this coming child, John. Number one, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. The angel isn't saying that John is going to be highly esteemed by God, but he's literally saying that he will serve God's plans and kingdom in a special way. Now, we sometimes associate greatness with that first statement I made of being highly esteemed, greatness being notoriety and special recognition, but the Bible associates it with the privilege of being called to serve God. The first puts the focus on us being esteemed. The second puts the focus on God, the privilege of serving him. Who cares what recognition we get in this life? Who cares? What we should want is to, to do what God w will give, that God says will give us the recognition from him. That's what we should want most, serving him in ways that will give him the attention and the glory, which then we're told in Scripture that one day when we stand before him, which is the only place that we should really be looking for recognition, is when we stand before him that day, it tells us that he'll glorify us. He'll glorify us, and our hearts will be right. We won't receive it in the wrong way that we'll receive it in this life. Oftentimes when people recognize us for things in this life, we take it way too much to heart, and we take it to ourselves, and, and we really violate the, the, the idea of humility that Scripture lays out for us. But in that day when we stand before the Lord and He honors us, it'll be perfectly received because our hearts will be completely transformed. Our lives will be completely transformed in that day. So that's where we should be looking for the recognition, not in this life. Right now in this life, what we should be looking for is the privilege of drawing attention to Christ, to drawing attention to God and having him honored. 
That, and that's what makes us great in the sight of the Lord. And as we do that, the recognition that we often so desperately seek will come in due time, as I said, as we stand before the Lord. Remember what Jesus told his disciples when they arguing about who would be the greatest in God's kingdom. Here's what he says, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? Like he didn't know. He knew. He's baiting them for the answer. And it says in verse 34, but they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Want to be first? then look for the privilege of serving the Lord, whatever capacity. I'm not talking about in a church necessarily, but each and every day, just serving him with your life, where you live, where you work, where you go to school, where you walk, where you are, in the store, anywhere you are, the privilege of serving him. That's what Jesus says will make you great one day. Number two, we learn here that he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. This means that John was going to live the vow of a Nazarite. And the Nazarite vow is covered in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. I want to come back to that next week because it'll take us a little bit longer today than, than we really have time for. But I want to come back and talk about that a moment. And I hope you'll tune in because there's some really important implications for our lives. No, we don't take vows like they did in that day. And yet there's still implications from the Nazarite vow that I think can really play into our lives as believers. I'll talk about that next week. And then it says, in, uh, thirdly, that he'll also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This was an Old Testament way of affirming God's power and giftedness. And it was often found referenced in regard to the Old Testament saints who were set apart to a work that the Lord was calling them to do. But here it takes on a greater meaning because it's foreshadowing the greater presence of the Spirit in every believer's life. At this point, the Spirit was given in measure by God for specific purposes up to this point in time in, in the biblical record. But, but when Jesus came, that did change. When Jesus came, it, it, it became, and, and through his work on the cross for us, what was once given to men in a limited and in a, a specific way was given to all of us in a permanent sense as we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what Romans 8, 9 tells us. Romans 8, 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now listen to this latter part. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Do you hear what that just said? If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not in Christ. But if you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ, which tells us right away, number one, that the Spirit is no longer given by measure as it was in the Old Testament. He's not given in, for a specific mission, for a specific period of time, and then withdrawn. He is given to you the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ. also goes against what some teach of, of this idea that... Um, you know, that until you're baptized, and then I do believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I do believe in the fullness of the Spirit, but, but there are some who teach that until you have that second experience, that, you know, you, you, yes, you're, you're saved, but you don't have the Holy Spirit until then. That's wrong teaching biblically. We know that from the moment of salvation, 
We're given God's spirit. We're filled with his spirit. But what we need to be is overflowing with his spirit. That's the mistake they're making in regard to seeing the big picture. That, that overflowing experience might happen at the moment of salvation. It might happen in a second experience. I would argue it should happen all the time because Paul says to be filled with the spirit and not drunk with wine. To be filled literally means in the scriptures to keep on, keep on being filled. Well, how can I keep on being filled with something I already have? The idea is that you're being overflowed by God's spirit because of your yielded life to him so that he can work through you. But if you're in Christ, if you placed your faith in Jesus, don't let anybody tell you you don't have the spirit. And don't let anybody tell you that God will withdraw his spirit from you. We were just talking about Psalm 51, our Wednesday night study in the book of Psalms. And it's David's great prayer after his sin with Bathsheba and it's he's repenting. And in there, one of his prayers is, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And in my early days in Christianity, there used to be a little chorus that we used to sing that had those words in it. And I've stopped singing that song because biblically it's not correct for the new covenant believer. For the old covenant believer, it was absolutely true. They could grieve God enough that he would withdraw his spirit and his unction from them. But for you and I, we're promised the spirit. However, we can grieve the spirit, we're told, and we can quench the spirit. And those are two very different things. Spirit's still with us, but we can grieve and quench him by the things that we choose to do or believe in our lives, you see. And then here's another verse, John chapter 14, beginning of verse 15 through verse 17. John 14, beginning of verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you. Now listen to this, that he may abide with you for a season, for a short period of time, only until your mission's complete. No, that he may abide with you forever. Forever is a long time. Forever means forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's the relationship that we have with the Spirit in Christ. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are given the Holy Spirit and he will dwell in us forever. In fact, we're told elsewhere in Scripture that we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. That has a lot of ramifications to it that I would encourage you to dwell on just a little bit in your own meditation about the Lord and the things of the, of the Scriptures. You know, what that means to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's what you are if you're a believer. Now, here with John, yes, he's an Old Testament prophet, but we're being given this picture where he's filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And so we're given this, this really a foreshadowing of the kind of relationship that is about to be birthed with the Spirit to the new covenant believers. Fourth, it says he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. John's primary mission was to spiritually prepare Israel for their long-awaited Messiah. He would call them to a baptism of repentance, which was designed to prepare their hearts and get them looking forward to Jesus, who would come soon with the good news of the gospel of grace. John was also the first true prophet that God had sent to the people since Malachi, and, and huge numbers of, of Jews flocked to him because they knew something was happening after this 400 years of silence. Suddenly there's this guy on the block and he's a prophet of God. Can you imagine what that must have been like? 400 years of silence, no prophet since Malachi. And suddenly here comes John, man. Fifth, it says he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, that statement is actually taken directly from two prophetic passages found in the book of Malachi. The first one is found in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. 
Last prophets talking about this prophet. Listen, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. See the picture there? It's speaking of this forerunner of the Messiah. And he's talking about John, even though he's talking about this forerunner. He goes later in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so it's drawn from these that that now this angel is declaring that this is what John's role is. This is what he'll be filling. Now, Elijah from these prophecies was to precede the Messiah. However, John is filling the role of Elijah in an eschatological term, in a, in, a, in a prophetic term. First, Elijah came. Then Elisha received the spirit from Elijah to become a prophet and to continue Elijah's prophetic ministry. And now in the same sense, John comes in the same spirit, continuing Elijah's ministry as the forerunner of the Messiah, seeking to bring the people into right relationship with God through repentance. By the way, note in verses 16 and 17, notice how the deity of Christ is implied in this as well. Verse 16, it says that John would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. But then in verse 17, it says that John would go before him, speaking of Messiah. And who does him? It's Messiah. It's Jesus. And so the inference is clearly in turning the hearts to God and coming before him that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is God himself in the flesh. Now, one other note. A lot of people look to Malachi's prophecy and see only a partial fulfillment in this. John came in the spirit of Elijah as a forerunner of Jesus' first coming. But a lot of people believe, including the Jews who are still waiting for, for their Messiah to come, they believe that Elijah will again physically appear as a forerunner to their Messiah when he comes. And in many ways, the false prophet will be that to the Antichrist who the Jew, Jews will first believe to be their Messiah. But many Christians believe that either Elijah himself or another prophet sent in the spirit of Elijah will appear before Jesus returns. Maybe one of the two witnesses is exactly that, as outlined in Revelation chapter 11. Quite possibly. We don't know. But I'm of the camp that either another in the spirit of Elijah or physically Elijah will precede Jesus' second coming when he comes. Well, look on at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. You know, some Bible commentators and teachers point out that Zechariah's response is kind of similar to Abraham when an angel told him that he and Sarah would have a child and they were very old too. But, but I think it's a little bit different. It's actually more like Sarah's response than Abraham's. And while we can fully appreciate his response, given the fact that he and Elizabeth have long been trying to have children with no results up to this point, and they're both now getting really to an age where childbearing by human standards is no longer possible. So it's understandable, the response, but, but it's also a response driven by a guardedness of this news, which simply seems too good to be true, and he wanted to protect himself from disappointment. So in effect, he's saying, how can this be when we're this old? Can you validate this with some proof? 
so that I know this isn't just some, you know, falafel I ate for dinner before, you know, that's giving me hallucinations now. You know, we can empathize, empathize with this response. We really can. Well, maybe not with the falafel, but we can emphasize, uh, empathize with Zechariah's response to this news. But it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right, nor is the response the response that God wants from any of us. In fact, it's responses like this that rob us of the confidence God wants us to have in him as his people. And, and as one commentator wisely points out, it often robs us of so many miraculous things that God wants to do for us. Like Zacharias, we look at the circumstances first, and then we look at God and we try to figure out what God could do within the circumstances, or we rule out the things based on the circumstances that God can do. And that's a mistake. We would all do well to always keep in mind what Jesus told us is recorded in Matthew 19 and verse 26. Matthew 19 and verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Look on, he says in verse 19, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and to bring you these glad tidings. Note two things that this angel now tells Zacharias. I am Gabriel. Zacharias would have recognized the name of this angel because he is named in the book of Daniel where, where he's associated as the messenger of God. His name in Hebrew literally means God's strong man, man of God. God is my warrior. Now, there are only two angels identified in all of Scripture, Gabriel and Michael. Gabriel is God's messenger angel, and Michael is the national archangel of Israel. Secondly, we're also told, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you. Gabriel is telling him this because it meant, it's meant to authenticate the message that he's giving to Zacharias is coming from God. Gabriel's authority to say what he's about to say to Zechariah rests on his relationship with and his proximity to God. It isn't a message that this angel's making up on his own. He's coming and declaring a message that God specifically has sent him to declare to him. And once again, I want to remind you that although the presence and the work of angels in our world is very real, Angels are simply responding to God's direction and serving us by serving him. Angels are never, never, never to be the focus of our worship or even any of our spirituality. Making the angels the center of things is not just grievous to God, but it is, it is profane fire because it pollutes the worship of him by inserting and introducing things into our worship that do not belong there. Look at verse 20. We're going to wrap it up here, I believe, this morning. Look at verse 20. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which be, will be fulfilled in their own time. So the angel responds to Zacharias' response. He will give him a sign to validate what he's telling him. God gracious. <laughs> He tolerates and our whims and our lack of faith, and he gives us these things. But, but he also tells him here that he'll make him mute until everything he told him will come to pass. Well, it's awesome that God would allow this angel to answer his request for a sign because it reveals how God accommodates the weakness of fallen human beings. But at the same time, there is something contained in this response that none of us should ever want to hear. You know what it is? Because you did not believe my words. Because you didn't believe me. 
you know, it's one thing to ask God for something because we recognize the frail nature of our faith. You know, it's like the man who came to Jesus and he's, and Jesus said to him, do you believe for this healing? And he says, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. That's okay. God handles that. There's faith in that. There's faith of a mustard seed. Even in that statement, I believe but my faith isn't big enough, Lord. I'm still, I know my faith is deficient. It's lacking. Look, that's one thing, but it is quite another thing for God to have to do something for us because we simply don't believe him. Because just at the end of the day, we don't believe him. I know I personally fall short in this area. I do. But it is something I don't want to resign myself to because I know it really undermines the trust and the confidence that God wants me to have in him and the things that he wants to do for me. The Bible has nothing good to say about unbelief, and, and we should take that to heart. You can do your own study of the scriptures, but look at the rebukes that Jesus gives over the issue of unbelief and where it leads. And instead of being like Zacharias, we should set our hearts on being more like Abraham, of whom Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 19 through 22. Romans 4, verse 19. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had been promised, he was also able to, what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. There's the contrast between Abraham and, and Zacharias. Oh, we could get into Sarah. We don't have time for that. That was a completely different response. But Abraham, he knew his beyond childbearing years. He knew the promise that God was making didn't seem humanly possible. But he still didn't waver in that promise. He took God at his word. That's all God wants from us. I don't care whether it has to do with salvation. You see, I would argue that many people who are trying to work for their salvation don't get that because what they're really trying to do is to say that there must be something more I must do, that it isn't enough, that God's promise to save me by faith in him alone is not enough. I have to do certain things. See, to you, God would say, because you did not believe my words, because you didn't believe my words. There are those of us when, when we realize that God wants to do a work on something and he's trying to instill, stir our faith in it, that we resist it and we push away from it and we just don't see how it can be possible because we're trying to rationalize it based on the circumstances, based on our understanding of things. To us, God would say, because you did not believe my words. It's a rebuke. It's a gentle rebuke, but it's still a rebuke. We shouldn't want that, but it should be like Abraham. We're not going to waver at the promise of God through unbelief. And as we do that, we will find that God will strengthen our faith. And in the end, he'll give us a testimony by which we can praise him. Look, I already said that as human beings, our faith can be really shaky. There's nothing wrong with going before God and saying, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you're telling me I'm going to do it. I'm going to believe you're going to do it. I believe you're going to do it. Help my unbelief. Help those weak areas of my unbelief. Lord, it doesn't matter how you do it, but you told me you will, and I'm going to stand on faith on that. I encourage you that, even in the season that we're in right now, to know that the promises of God have not changed. 
You know, God never promised us wealth and a, and, a, and a wealthy society to live in. He never promised us good health. He never promised us any of those things. Oh, he does in the kingdom, but we're not in the kingdom yet. But he does promise to be with us in the storm. He promises to give us peace in the storm. He promises so many things. He promises to be with us and to speak into our hearts. He promises us these things. The question is, will we, in the weakness of our flesh, still take him at his word and to say to him, Lord, help my unbelief, but I do believe and I will stand on these things. If you do that, I can promise you this. He's going to meet you. He's going to meet you right there, wherever you are, in whatever circumstance you're facing. He's going to meet you. He may not change the circumstance, but he will certainly begin to change your heart and he'll begin to build the faith that you need in the midst of that storm that will give you a testimony when the storm is over. We all need that. And we need it when the storm is gone. We need it in the good times. We need that. Praise the Lord. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already being dead. Since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. And therefore... It was accounted to him for righteousness. Zacharias will get the desire of his heart. Elizabeth will get the desire of her heart. But how much better it would have been if it would have simply been, I believe you, Lord. I believe you. Praise the Lord. Maybe we're more like Zacharias than we are like Abraham, but may the Lord change us all. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.